Hello, you're listening to Theory and Practice. I'm Anthony Philippakis. And I'm Alex Wolchko. Our guest today is Professor Sir Rory Collins, an epidemiologist whose pioneering trials provided the groundwork for evidence-based medicine. He has changed the way in which cardiology is practiced across the world, from prevention with statins and blood pressure control to acute care for someone having a heart attack. And then there's his more recent work, setting up and managing the largest, most detailed, and most accessible biomedical database in the world, the UK Biobank. The UK Biobank allows researchers to look at the interaction between genes, biomedical measures, lifestyle, and environment in a prospective study. It contains individual risk factors, biomedical, genetic, imaging, and health service use data on half a million people. By 2022, it will have so much data that it could fill the hard drives of 15,000 laptops. In 2020, he received the Medical Research Council Millennium Medal for Scientific Excellence and Impact. How does someone achieve such breadth in their scientific discoveries? How does he run the massive UK Biobank, and what will it reveal? Professor Sir Rory Collins, talking to us from his home in England, welcome to Theory and Practice. Thanks very much, Anthony. Um, Nice to meet you again. You know, it's such an honor to have you, Professor Collins. Going into this interview, I was actually thinking a little bit about my grandfather, uh, who was a physician. That's a boring thought. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, didn't mean it that way. (laughs) No, no. No, but I was thinking a little bit about my grandfather, who was a physician in a rural farming community. And he was taught to practice medicine the way that his mentor told him to do things. And I was taught to be a physician and practice based on what the data said. And when I think about people who've ushered in this new era of medicine that happened between my grandfather and I, I can think of very few people who've been more important in that than you. So thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak to us. Thank you. You know, to begin with, uh, maybe we can go back in time and you can say a little bit about your childhood and upbringing. I know that you grew up on a farm as well uh, and would love to hear the story of how you ended up going to medicine. Well, I only grew up on a farm because uh, I'm an ex-colonial. I was born in Hong Kong and at the age of nine in the tradition of the British colonials, I was sent back to the UK to go to school. My parents were still in Hong Kong. So uh, in the vacations, I stayed on a local farm with the family there. And then every year I saw my parents. Then I went to the local school in Kent and then to a private school, what we call a public school in London, Dulwich College. And um, I think when I was about 15, I had a really very, very good maths teacher. And suddenly maths started to make sense to me. And then when I was thinking about what would I do at university, I went to the careers officer and I said, you know, I really like mathematics. And uh, he said, that's very good. You could get a job as an, an actuary. And I asked him what an actuary was. And he said, well, you need to work out about insurance, things like that. And I thought that's only about the most boring job possible. So I was just chatting to a friend who was in my class and he said, well, I'm going to apply to medical school. And I thought, okay, medical school sounds more interesting than being an actuary. So I applied to medical school and um, I, I thought medical school was probably even more boring than being an actuary, actually. So I explored the possibility of doing a third year in statistics. And it turned out no one had ever asked to do that. So you could do a third year in psychology, anatomy, history of medicine, physiology. But when I went to the university's colleges around London and asked, could I do a year of statistics? They said, you're a medical student. 
No. I'd heard that America was a bit more flexible in its university system. So I went to the library and I got a book that had all the universities in America. And I went through it and I looked for names that I'd vaguely heard of. And I wrote a handwritten letter to three dozen of them saying that I'd like to come transfer from London University, do a year of statistics and get a degree in statistics and then transfer back. I think Harvard sent me a note back saying, send us a check and we'll consider it. And most of them either didn't reply or just said no. But George Washington University in Washington, D.C. said, yeah, sounds fine. I spent a year, 1976, 1977, at George Washington University doing statistics and then transferred back to finish off my medical training. You know, say a little bit about the state of epidemiology and biostatistics at that point in time. To what extent was there really the ethos of evidence-based medicine in the air, or was it still too early for the average physician to be thinking about it? Well, as I say, I mean, at the medical school, they were considering quite seriously kicking me out because they said, what is statistics and mathematics got to do with medicine? There was a real separation between the people who were applying statistics, applying numbers to medicine, and the clinicians. The people who ran clinical trials were the clinicians, and the statisticians were there to crunch the numbers for them. They were really seen as quite separate. And one other kind of quote before we go on to your time as a medical trainee, you know, I've heard you say before the importance of asking an important question and answering it reliably. Based on your time in Washington, D.C., What were the insights that you learned and what motivated you to take that future perspective into your research? So the thing I got out of Washington, D.C., apart from an awful lot of fun, actually, um, 1976, 1977 in the U.S. was an extraordinarily positive time. I'd never been to America before. So, you know, it was a great, great fun time. But also, I mean, I learned a lot of statistics. I was getting paid one day a week to work in the biostatistics center with a statistician called John McKean, who was doing the statistics on a um, NIH study of the dissolution of gallstones with chinodeoxycholic acid. I mean, I think the question wasn't particularly interesting in retrospect, but I really liked the idea of the randomized trial, the concept that you could actually find out what was true. Did a treatment work or not? So working in the U.S. introduced me to the randomized trial. Then I came back to the U.K., uh, did my clinical training, did my internship, and decided that I would like to do research and just learn a bit more about doing research and particularly um, doing randomized trials. So I'd read a book by Peter Armitage, who uh, had done a lot of the work on developing stopping rules for randomized trials. I'd read his book, so I, I managed to get in touch with him. And he introduced me to, to Richard Peter. Uh, he rang him up and Richard Peter said, I'm too busy to, to, to meet with him, but he can come and make an appointment with my secretary. So I found my way onto this corridor in the old hospital in, in Oxford. And there was this man fixing a chair in the corridor. And I looked around for the secretary's office and he asked me what I was looking for. And I said, I was looking for Richard Peter's secretary. He said, well, well I'm Richard Peter, come on into my office. So this person who I thought was the handyman uh, ushered me into his office and we chatted. And then he had to do some stuff with Richard Doll, but he said, read this paper and I'll come and find you in a while. So he came and found me and um, uh, we went down to have lunch. We were chatting over lunch. 
And a couple of people sat down next to us and they started dealing cards. He said, do you play bridge? And I said, uh, yes. So I was recruited over a game of bridge because I, I wasn't a very good bridge player. And these were all statisticians who were card counting bridge players. But I happened to make a, a bid and make a small slam, uh, which um, was extremely lucky. And I think that was the basis on which I was given a job. So for the first six months when I started working with him, I was terrified every time I went down for lunch that, that they would find out I wasn't a good bridge player and my, my job would not be renewed. So I always used to be very generous in allowing other people to, to, to play rather than me. Um, but it was really Richard Pito who uh, said, um, you know, there are two things you do with clinical trials. You ask an important question. And in many ways, that's the easy thing. Lots of us clinically trained can think of important questions. The failure has been that people then haven't answered them reliably. That was really what Richard was pushing, that we needed to think, well, why was that? Austin Bradford Hill had introduced the idea of randomization to get rid of bias, but people weren't taking random error seriously enough. They weren't thinking about the scale of the studies. And so what Richard was saying was you needed to deal with both. If you wanted to detect moderate effects of treatment, which would still be humanly important, then you needed to randomize to avoid bias, to avoid systematic error, and you needed to randomize large enough number of people that you also reduced the random error sufficiently so that both your biases and your random error were small by comparison with the kinds of effects you're trying to pick up. So I learned from Richard, uh, and I think in many ways I learned more medicine as well as medical research from Richard than I ever did at medical school because he always asked the question, well, what's the evidence for that? And when you think back to what we were working on at the time, the treatment of acute myocardial infarction, at that time in the early 80s, the view was that a heart attack was not caused by a clot, but that the clot was secondary to the heart attack. And um, it was only during the early 80s, and then with the trials of thrombolysis, followed up by trials of angioplasty, but particularly the thrombolysis trials that demonstrated that dissolving the clot reduced mortality, that it was the clot that was primary. But that wasn't what we were taught in medical school. And I think that was the thing. You know, Richard asked the question, what's the evidence? And then the randomized trial, if done at sufficient scale, could answer it reliably. But if it wasn't big enough, you could get the wrong answer. You could miss important differences. It was such an exciting time in medicine where you had you and Richard Pato in the UK, and then you had people like Gene Brownwald and others, you know, Rob Califf doing something very similar in the US. What was the set of circumstances that actually got us to the point of running cardiac megatrials and buying into this idea of really getting to statistical significance and reliability? I think that, you know, one can describe theory, the idea that you need to randomize the idea that you need to do large trials, and people won't necessarily be convinced at a visceral level. But an exemplar changes everything. And I think uh, the ISIS-2 trial with thrombolytic therapy with 17,000 patients versus placebo, and then aspirin versus placebo and effectorial design, I think did make a difference. I have a question if I can jump in here, Anthony. I'm curious at that time when you're proposing a study with 
close to 20,000 participants, which in and of itself must have been visionary at the time. Along with that was the idea that there should be a sham treatment or a placebo treatment with not giving people the actual desired treatment. How was that viewed at the time, this notion that you could include somebody in a trial and not actually give them the treatment that you're trying to test the efficacy of? I mean, first of all, you have to bear in mind at that time, someone had a heart attack, they got put in a coronary care unit, they got some pain relief, they got some ECG leads put on them, and they were washed. I mean, there wasn't much more that was done. And um, if they had an arrhythmia, then the team tried to deal with that. But there wasn't any treatment. So the placebo control wasn't so much an issue. The main issue was the idea of giving something that would dissolve clots. I had been employed to do a trial of intravenous beta blocker therapy, ISIS-1, that was following on from work that Salim Yusuf had done as his PhD, Peter Slight, that suggested it reduced infarct size. And they'd gone to talk to Richard Pito, and he'd said, well, you need to do thousands of people to look to see whether it had an effect on mortality. In typical Richard style, he didn't say how many thousands, because you have to hook your fish before you reel them in. In, That demonstrated that one could do a trial very simply, and it created a network of centers. In the end, I don't think the treatment was particularly effective, but it created the structure And while that trial was going on, Salim and I decided we would look at all the trials of all the treatments that had been done and see whether anything else looked interesting from the small trials. And the one that really stood out was the two dozen or so small trials of fibromatic therapy, largely streptokinase, but um, a few urokinase trials. And individually, none of them was compelling, uh, other than that they, they all showed that you did cause some bleeding, but none was compelling in terms of reducing mortality. But if you combined all the data, there were you know, a few thousand people and a highly significant 25% reduction in mortality. But no one accepted that. They thought, you know, what is this meta-analysis nonsense? Um, and then also the regimens were really quite complex. They involved 24 or 48-hour infusions. But there were a couple of cardiologists, Neuhaus and Schroeder, in Berlin, who had been looking at a different regimen of giving a very much higher dose over one hour, you know, one and a half, two million units over an hour. And so we looked at that and we thought, well, why don't we try piloting that? And the anxiety of the clinicians in the hospital in Oxford was that we were going to cause bleeding, we were going to cause problems with this drug. There was no scientific rationale for doing it. The placebo was not a concern. It was the active drug. But the pilot actually went pretty well. We didn't have any side effects. We didn't have any evidence that it was effective, but at least it looked like it wasn't going to produce a lot of complications. After the event, there had been criticism of doing the ISIS trials because people said, well, the meta-analysis showed it worked. But at the time, people didn't believe meta-analysis. I mean, I know know they're everywhere like a rash now, But at that time, the concept that you would combine the results from different trials was really very alien. Um, So so the whole attitude to meta-analysis and believing meta-analysis was completely transformed. And it was really Tom Chalmers and, again, Richard Pito, who were the ones who pushed that methodology. And interestingly, the statistical methodology used to do it was created by Nathan Mantel, 
who was in the biostatistics unit that I went to when I did my BSc in George Washington University. Um, you've kept it all uh, in the family. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all coincidental. You know, you've you've moved on to very large data collection efforts. So let's talk about the UK Biobank, which has data on half a million people that on entry were aged between 40 and 69. And it's combining genetic information with quite detailed individual health information. And it was and continues to be a massive enterprise that, as far as I can tell, didn't start off with a singular hypothesis or question being asked, which to me is the definition of a high risk and potentially very high reward data collection enterprise. So how how did you make this happen? I didn't. It it just kind of happened. So Richard Peter and I and others, um, Nick Day in Cambridge, people in IARC, uh, the European Cancer Center in Lyon, had all been arguing for a long time that large prospective studies with blood samples would be valuable, that you needed to do a prospective study in order to assess people before they develop disease and then follow them long term. That was how Richard Doll with Bradford Hill demonstrated that smoking was associated with a lot of different diseases in the British doctor study. And we got absolutely nowhere in making the case for this with any of the funders in the UK. We've been doing a number of clinical trials in China, as well as working with Cornell on studies of nutrition in China. And through contacts we had on tobacco activism in Hong Kong, we managed to get through to a family, the Kaduri family, who had a trust fund for supporting things in China. So they provided us with the funding to do that. And my colleague in Oxford, um, Zengming Chen, working with people at Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, identified five rural and five urban areas in China where they would be able to get long-term follow-up, and they um, set about recruiting half a million people. And so we'd given up on the UK. And then for reasons I still don't understand, the Wellcome Trust and the MRC just decided that they were going to fund a large prospective cohort. They came up with a budget which was based on completely erroneous calculations, but they didn't know that. Is this another example of hooking the fish before you lure it in? No, no, I I don't think this was deliberate at all. They got a London firm of accountants to do some calculations and they forgot to multiply one of the numbers by six. So they fixed on a budget. So I continued the conversation and uh, in 2005, September 2005, I was appointed to take this money and try to work out with the rest of the team how to get half a million people. And I, I think I was approached because we did large scale studies. We'd had the experience in China setting up the study there. We did a lot of large-scale randomized trials where we recruited people in the UK. Then, of course, to your specific question, I was asked to then provide a rationale for why the funders were funding it. And I said, well, you know, this is what this is the number. This is what we're planning to do. And they said, well, put some hypotheses in. What will it allow you to do? And I refused absolutely because I said, The only thing I do know is if I put a hypothesis in here, it will look stupid in 10 years' time. If I, at that time, were to say, you know, I'm going to look to see whether this candidate gene is associated with disease, it will look daft. And, of course, that did turn out to be the case because by the time we were doing anything with the samples, people had moved on from the whole concept of candidate genes because we had 
genotype arrays and it had all gone into you know kind of reverse genetics if you like where you allow the disease to tell you which part of the gene is interesting rather than thinking you know which part of the gene is interesting. And now the UK Biobank is leading the work on immunological responses to COVID-19, the lingering effects of COVID-19 like long COVID. So what do you think the data that is already in the UK Biobank is going to add to these studies? Well, I think a lot of us have found the last year, um, what is the Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times? You know, challenging. Um, and, and then the question is, how do you respond to the challenge? And I think um, what we've seen in the world of science, of medical science, is an extraordinary response to, to the challenge. I mean, who would have believed really uh, a year ago that we would have vaccines that were so effective that would have some treatments that actually made a difference. I mean, certainly I didn't. Uh, and so, you know, UK Biomet was never set up really to be relevant to infectious diseases other than chronic um, effects. But when it comes along, when a problem comes along, the whole idea of medical science is you think, well, how can I help solve it? And one of the things that we were doing in UK Biobank was we were in the middle of an imaging study. So we'd imaged 50,000 of the UK Biobank participants. But of course, we had to close that all down because we were in lockdown in the UK. People weren't meant to be going to work. And they certainly weren't meant to be then traveling to be imaged for an observational study. So we had all these closed imaging centers with imaging staff. And we thought, well, what do we do? Do we make them more redundant? And just mothball it. And we thought, well, could we come up with something better than that? We thought, well, we've got 50,000 imaged people. Some of them will get infected and some of them won't. Why don't we invite back people who have been imaged before and who are infected and matched controls? Because we would then create, I think, probably the only, certainly the only large detailed database of people with pre-infection imaging data and post-infection imaging data and uh, uninfected individuals with the same imaging data and the same imaging protocols. So then we thought, well, what else could we do? And uh, the UK government, in its wisdom, had bought a very large number of lateral flow device tests for antibodies, but they hadn't actually decided what they wanted to do with them. They had a million of these devices, and we asked them, and they offered to give us half a million of them. So we had half a million kits, but we didn't have any funding. So we talked to Amazon, who have been helping us set up our data analysis platform. And they said, well, we do a lot of delivery. And they've been helping the UK government with a number of studies. And they offered to deliver the kits for free. And so now we'll have in the database whether people have evidence of previous infection or not, so that researchers can look to see whether infection of all kinds of severity, from asymptomatic through to hospitalized, is associated with long-term health outcomes of all types. Roy, let me switch gears, uh, Professor Collins, and talk a little bit about some of your recent work going back to your roots in trials. You know, one of the things that I find a bit dismaying is that when one looks at the top 10 causes of death in the world, there's so little drug development activity for them. So much of it is focused on rare diseases and cancer. And a lot of that is just the expense and cost of running the large trials that you were part of creating. And I know that a lot of your recent work is about trying to rectify this state of affairs. Maybe you could say a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty of randomized trials is they are so simple. You give one lot a treatment, you don't give it to the other lot. They get everything else that's known to work and you follow them. But unfortunately, you know, a kind of bureaucratic mountain of obstacles has been put in the way of that very simple concept. And I think that that is really um, tragic. So I think we need to strip it away. I know Rob Califf tried to the extent he could uh, when he was at the FDA, but not there long enough. I think the FDA itself has been a leader in, in this, people like Janet Woodcock, people like Bob Temple. And in many ways, I think you know, the FDA is a solution to the problem. They are really the leading regulator in the world. And I don't mean that from an economic perspective, if you like. I mean, from an intellectual perspective, the people at the top of the FDA, the officers in the top of the FDA are really outstanding and they understand the science. But somehow we've shackled ourselves with a bureaucracy. And if you go back and look at what that is, it was the pharmaceutical industry and the regulators getting together and wanting to have a single rule for trials of the registration of new drugs. And I think by streamlining the bureaucracy, by going back to first principles and focusing on what really matters in the way in which trials are done, we can make that change. One other question about lessons learned from UK Biobank as it relates to trials. Should we be collecting more data on people in trials or less? I think we should be collecting the data that we need for the particular question at the scale that we need to collect it. So if you're interested in the effect of a treatment on mortality, then all you need to know is whether people live or die. Also, death is quite difficult to affect. So you're probably looking for quite a modest effect. If on the other hand, you want to know whether the treatment has an effect on, I don't know, lowering cholesterol, you have that measure in everybody. You're probably looking for quite a big effect. So I think you need to record what you need to answer the question. I'm struck throughout this conversation about the concept of randomness and how it's kind of threaded through your life. Uh, both personally, my career right? certainly one. <laughs> exactly, the randomness of you bumping into that person that led you to medical school, the universities that happened to write you back, and who happened to be working at those universities, and that's kind of an uncontrolled randomness in a way. And then, of course, the controlled randomness that is your life's work and in the lasting impact that you've left on the field of medicine. And I'm curious if you think about your own personal serendipity in the same way that you think about the work that you do in medicine? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I've been phenomenally lucky. I mean, you know, I bumped into people at the right time, and that is just luck. And I think particularly bumping into Richard Puto when I did, Richard wasn't a mentor. He was a sponsor. Um, you know, he, uh, he believed in me, I think. Well, he, he certainly believed in me more than I believed in myself. And um, I think that's really important. I think it's where you can really make a difference. And I was very, very lucky to have that because I didn't do anything of any merit for 10 years or so. I mean, I went to Oxford in 1981 and the ISIS-2 trial was published in The Lancet in 1988. So seven years with really nothing to show for it. Yeah, you need to be lucky. I mean, the problem is in... You, when, when one looks at people at the end of their career, it looks as if it's all planned. But the reality is it's a kind of a random walk. 
That's incredible. Thank you for sharing your story. It's inspiring and also heartening to me that as I'm walking randomly, that's okay. (laughs) One has to pursue stuff that's interesting to my medical school friends. When I first went into Oxford to do research, they were saying to me, what the hell are you doing? Why are you doing this? (laughs) But I do think that, um, that the medicine is finally becoming a mathematical discipline and an engineering discipline. So um, one of the things that I've been keen with Biobank to do is to try to persuade the people who really understand data, who are not the ones in medicine particularly, but the ones who, you know, the engineers, the physicists, to engage. I suspect they haven't in the past because it's been difficult to get hold of biomedical data. It's been a lot easier to get hold of astronomical data than it has been to get hold of medical records. The most important thing to us is our health. So why aren't these people really right at the center of helping us to sort out the problems? Because it is a data science problem. Thank you so much, Professor Collins. Such an honor to have you on the show today. It's been wonderful to speak with you. Thank you. Huge thanks to Professor Sir Rory Collins. Listeners from our first series will know that this podcast sprung up from a meetup in Boston called Hammer and Nail. Now, this was a meeting to bring together people who were working in computer science with people who were working in biology or in clinical applications. And we'd noticed that there wasn't a lot of crosstalk between these two fields. And so we got everybody together, supplied ample drinks and snacks, and we'd have people propose and vote on a hammer or a method and a nail or an interesting problem. And then we'd have a talk on each and uh, a good time was had by all and everybody learned a whole lot. And the point of this podcast is to scale that up. So we'd like to take time at the end of each episode in the spirit of that meetup to discuss a big problem and possible solutions inspired by what we just heard. So Anthony, what have you been thinking about? Do you have a hammer or a nail today? The thing I've been thinking about, and I I think it can best be described as a nail, but it's the problem of conducting research on human beings. You know, we've all kind of grown up with the idea of biology as a laboratory scientist, where you're working with cells in a dish or some kind of model organism like a mouse or a fruit fly. But the idea of actually doing experiments on humans especially given the conversation with Professor Collins on the UK Biobank, is something I'd like to delve into. And there are a number of interesting things that I've been thinking about. One part is the past, the origins of human subjects research. Then another part is the current state with efforts like UK Biobank and other biobanks cropping up around the world. And then a third is a bit about the future of where it can go and what are sort of interesting problems to go after. So going back in time, one of the things that I think is amazing is that it didn't used to be the case that medicine was actually a science. And by that, I mean that we actually had evidence for what worked and what didn't. And two people that I admire greatly in the history of medicine that did a lot to change this were both in Victorian England. One was Florence Nightingale, who was not only the founder of modern nursing, but actually someone who was quite gifted at data analysis. I did not know that. These are incredibly deep cuts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, she was a uh, the founder of nursing and during the Crimean War uh, actually kept a notebook of what the soldiers died from and did a lot to show that things like poor sanitation and, you know, overcrowding were huge causes of mortality during the Crimean War and not just, you know, the soldiers killing each other. 
And actually, it's kind of amazing. You can even see some examples of data visualization tools that kind of rival what you'd see in Tufty that were kind of in that original notebook. I'll be honest, I think, you know, Florence Nightingale may well be the person in the history of medicine that I most admire. Another great example is um, the work of Jon Snow, uh, not the Jon Snow from Game of Thrones, but rather <laughs> a, a Jon Snow in Victorian England, when there were a lot of cholera outbreaks. And he started keeping a map of where there were incidents of cholera. And actually, in one of the worst outbreaks, kind of traced it back and realized that many of the cases were coming from infected water pump and the pump was removed and it did a lot to kind of improve the health of that neighborhood. And then, you know, out the other side of that, you see the kind of birth of this line of thinking of why don't we collect data on people living in the world? And you see this furthered in the ideas of someone named Archie Cochran. And in medicine, there's still something called Cochrane Reviews, where they try to put together comprehensive surveys on what therapies work and why. But he was a very hard-nosed person who said, we really need to be collecting data. We need to understand what therapies work, why they do, was a big advocate for randomized trials. Again, this was early 20th century. And then, you know, out the other side of World War II, the pendulum swings a bit to America. And you start to see the Framingham Heart Study being born in the U.S., and again, the idea that there was a time when we didn't know that cholesterol caused heart attacks or that smoking caused cancer, it's kind of amazing because we all take it for granted. But it was really these kind of early generation of epidemiologic cohorts that really gave strong hypotheses that these things were true. And so now you look at the work of Professor Collins in the UK Biobank. And in some sense, it's Framingham Heart Study for the internet era. You know, it's whereas Framingham Heart Study is, you know, around 10,000 people, the UK Biobank is obviously 500,000 people, so 50 times that. And not only is it massive in the number of people that it collects, but it's also massive in the sheer variety of data types that it has, ranging from cardiac MRIs. You know, there's no larger collection of cardiac MRIs that I'm aware of in the world than the UK Biobank, genome sequences, etc. And it's actually quite exciting to be in a time and place when there are a lot of efforts that look like the UK Biobank that are popping up. You know, in America, we have All of Us, which is an effort to recruit a million or more Americans, collect full medical records on them, full genome sequences. It actually has quite an interesting innovation, which I think is quite a good one, with a strong spirit of actually returning results to the people who participate in the study. So in the traditional epidemiologic cohorts, if we collected data on you, we didn't let you necessarily let you know the results of those tests. But you know, you think about now, all of the people who participate in all of us will actually get their own information about their genetics and variants that dis different diseases that they're at risk for returned to them. I mean, that causes a massive change in how you conduct the study, just the sheer amount of genetic counseling that you need to do to responsibly inform people about their own biology is quite a new paradigm. And again, you start to see biobanks cropping up all over the world, ranging from Estonia, which has an incredible biobank. And, and Anthony, by biobank, uh, you mean a collection of a bunch of data about a bunch of people. Is, is that it? Exactly. Well, it, even the word, the usage of it has evolved. It was once meant to be a bank of physical biological samples, right? Oh, like blood in a freezer kind of a thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and in some circles, when you say biobank, uh, it still means that. But uh, in some ways, actually, UK Biobank was almost the one that kind of crystallized this idea 
that it's it's really a data bank rather than a biobank. Like a return to Florence Nightingale's notebook. Exactly. It's Florence, you know, it was it Mark Andreessen once said that Bitcoin is a ledger for the internet era. You know, UK Biobank is kind of Florence Nightingale's notebook for the internet era, if you will. And so as I start to say, you're starting to see them crop up all around the world from places like Estonia or Bahrain to far off and exotic lands like Cleveland and places like that. So, you know, it's quite an interesting thing to see the rise of these around the world. I see, I, I managed to say that joke right as you were drinking there, Alex. It's dangerous what you're doing. This microphone is not cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I timed that one perfectly. Awesome. awesome. Too good. Um, yeah, anyway, so going back to, you know, this kind of thing, and I think there are a few innovations that we'll start to see for the future about where it's going. You know, one is actually, and again, we're starting to see this already. In the past, the biobanks were always run through medical centers, but it can be quite expensive to get people to come into the medical center, draw blood on them. They have to pay for parking. It's kind of inconvenient. And instead, you know, this model of recruiting patients through the web, which again, seems so obvious, but was really quite revolutionary when it first got going. And to kind of close out this section, I think UK Biobank sparks the imagination of what a new kind of epidemiology could look like. And this was crystallized. I remember one day I was sitting with one of the developers on my team at the Broad, and we had on the screen this picture of the ratio of software engineers to users at Facebook. And it's quite amazing that there are more than a million users for every one software engineer at Facebook. And that's not unique of Facebook. It's true of a lot of technology companies in our time. The developer asked me a question that kind of really sparked my imagination. What would it be like if a medical researcher could run a study with that kind of leverage, where you had a million participants for every one investigator involved in running the study? And at first blush, it sounds impossible, but then you think, well, why not? Why couldn't we run studies that are so much more scalable and that manage to engage patients and get them to donate their data and really kind of build a learning medical system? Next week on Theory and Practice, we'll be speaking to Professor Jennifer Lisgarden from UC Berkeley. Then, later in this series, we'll be speaking to Dr. Carolyn Uller from The Broad, Aviv Regev from Genentech, and GV's Krishna Yeshwant. If you've got any questions, please email us at theoryandpracticegv.com or tweet at GVTeam. We'd love to hear from you. This is a GV podcast and a Blanchard House production. Our producers were Hilary Geit, Lily O'Mahaney, Nico Raufast, and Rosie Pye, with music by Dalo. I'm Anthony Filipakis. I'm Alex Wolchko. And this is Theory and Practice. <laughs>